Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Let me tell you a story about myself. Um, seven or eight years ago, my partner became pregnant and she was slightly um, alarmed as well as excited because, you know, the whole thing with having children is that you have to give up a lot of stuff. Your life changes forever, etc., etc. And... Um, I tried to be supportive and to help her through that, that those um, those fears and anxieties. And she came through and then it became essentially a whole positive looking forward uh, thing for her. But then that left a bit of shelf space for my own uh, doubts and fears. And so, so I, I had a bit of that. And I remember having a panic attack one day. And and thinking to myself, that's it now. I'm going to be a parent. All my time will be gone. I will never be able to read Philip Larkin's Whitson Weddings again. And for some reason, everything that I would lose, the whole cultural world that I would lose, the whole um, intellectual world that I, fe- I, I felt I would lose was encapsulated in that single slim volume of poetry by Philip Larkin. So I thought I'd, 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 I'd talk about that today, that book of poetry. It obviously uh, means a, a great deal to me. I love Larkin. I think, I think Lark, Larkin is probably one of the great poets of all... No, I think he is one of the great poets of all time, for me, for my own particular tastes. I'm not a fan of biography when it comes to uh, thinking about poetry. I, I, you know, when people say, "Oh, um, she was having a terrible time when she wrote this," and so it means blah blah. But I'll, I'll be straight. I do enjoy the fact that Larkin was a bald, bespectacled librarian in bicycle clips, who wrote amazing poetry with amazing ideas, and those ideas brilliantly expressed. I, I, I suppose it's about a lot of people now talk about representation um, that, you know, women want to see more women in strong, positive roles, people of colour, likewise, etc, etc, etc. And I sort of feel represented by uh, a weedy, unattractive, grumpy bloke who seems to have a sparkling inner life. Um, that gives me um, hope. I'd like to, I can only talk about a few of these poems, of course. The, the, the book's 46 pages. I don't know if there is a 46 pages that contains more wisdom and more beauty and more fabulously interesting stuff than, than The Wits and Weddings by Philip Larkin. Anyway, the book was um, published in 1964 and I, I want to start by uh, talking about a poem called Wild Oats. Um, Wild Oats is a story of, of a relationship. Um, for me, it's, it's also a, a story about passion versus reason, which has long been a, uh, a subject of poetry, certainly in the 18th century. They were kind of obsessed with that contrast between passion and reason. Anyway... Let me give you just the first four lines of this. It's quite... It, don't panic. It's not that poetic early on. It, it sounds... Um, you'll get it. About 20 years ago, two girls came in where I worked. A bosomy English rose 
and her friend in specs I could talk to. Now, her friend in specs I could talk to, oh man, says so much and is so brilliant. And there'll be a lot of poetry fans who are delighted by the idea that the, 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 the great poet is attracted to the uh, the friend in specs who we could talk to, but he isn't really. I think there's very much a sense that uh, he, he he just can't. He's too frightened of the other one. The bosomy English road rose is too much for him. I also think that Larkin, um, I think he's a man with a poetic sensibility who is extremely suspicious of poetic sensibility, and so. I imagine a large part of him would feel, although terrified, certainly more attracted to the bosomy English rose, the sort of attraction we don't really talk about nowadays. Um, yes, the friend in specs almost certainly would be the bookish one, which you think would be ideal for him. But he was even cynical about about literature. There's, there's a poem in this collection called A Study of Reading Habits, which ends... Books are a load of crap. So a lot of the tension in in Larkin is is poetry versus bloody mindedness. I would say. Anyway, the um, the relationship happens. Here we go. But it was the friend I took out, and in seven years after that, wrote over four hundred letters, gave a ten guinea ring. I got back in the end and met at numerous cathedral cities unknown to the clergy. I believe I met Beautiful twice. She was trying both times, so I thought, not to laugh. So the relationship happens. It's, it lasts for seven years, the relationship with the friend in specs. So, you know, it's, it's pretty good stuff, and it's a lovely idea of them meeting in cathedral cities. You can imagine them looking around and saying interesting, learned things and enjoying each other's minds. But when he starts telling us, there's, there's three stanzas to this poem. In the second stanza, the second lump of writing, if you don't know what a stanza is, um, we're only four lines into that, or three lines in, when he says, I gave a ten-guinea ring, I got back in the end. So we know that r the relationship is doomed. He doesn't let us think, oh, this is really going somewhere, cathedral cities, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, uh, the beautiful friend reappears. Um, I, I like, I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, she was trying not to laugh, it seemed... I mean, what is that? We can debate what that what that would be about. Why was the bosomy rose trying not to laugh when she um, saw him again? Maybe them again. I I feel it's because any relationship the bosomy rose is involved in is a sort of a main bout. You know, it's the headline relationship, whereas the speaker in this poem. Um, and the friend in specs are very much a relationship from the undercard. And I think if, if you are a main bout sort of a person, it's hard not to snigger at those, those in, in a lesser relationship. In the third stanza, then we, we, get, we get the conclusion of the relationship. 
parting after about five rehearsals was an agreement that I was too selfish, withdrawn and easily bored to love. Well, useful to get that learnt. Now, this is a relationship um, that, that part, they part after about five rehearsals. Oh, I, I mean, I feel that. I feel that thing when you, you know a relationship isn't working and you try to end it, you have another go, etc., etc. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I, reading and loving a poem is partly about claiming a certain ownership of it. I know this is Larkin's poem, but it's also my poem because I've read it, enjoyed it, thought about it, dwelt on it. So I have a certain ownership of it also. I think once a poet releases a poem into the into the world, then it it no longer belongs to them ex- exclusively. There is an essay about about this which I'll I, I might refer you to at, at some point. Um anyway, it's I think it uh, it's called the intentional fallacy. Check it out. Check it out. So there we go. They part after about five rehearsals. Uh, and interestingly, you imagine a big disagreement, but they talk about, he talks about an agreement ending it. It ended with an agreement. But the agreement, brilliantly, was that he was too selfish, withdrawn and easily bored to love. You can almost hear that being shouted at him in the in the streets of a, a cathedral city. and And that bit... Well, useful to get that learnt. Sounds like the, a muttered response. I, I, again, I'm, I'm putting some of myself into this, maybe, but that's how it, that's how it feels to me. So th- the poem ends with three... Uh, I mean, I, I like the ending. It's, um, it's a real ending. That's what it is. It's a sort of roll Dahl type of an ending. It ends... In my wallet are still two snaps. So you think he loves her. He still loves her. He can't get rid of the photographs. He still carries them in his wallet. Oh, why didn't he stay? Why didn't he stay with the friend in specs? But to just read you the whole of those lines. In my wallet are still two snaps of bosomy rose with fur gloves on. On lucky charms, perhaps. So... It's. I mean, it's. It's a twist. A twist in the tale, which um, is. You know, you might think is is a bit of a surprise in a poem. It's supposed to be, obviously. Um, two things here. Why is the poem called Wild Oats? When I was a, a young man, it was a thing that older men uh, used to say to me. You got to go out and sow your wild oats. The idea that you had a lot of trivial relationships, uh, which were heavy on the physical side of things. And then, you know, once you'd got all that out of your system, then you could settle down with with uh, with a sort of friend in specs type. In this poem, clearly, the bosomy rose is is the wild oats. He, sh- he should have sown, maybe. I think the modern idea is what they call the uh, sorbet relationship. So you have a relationship as a palate cleanser for the for the big for the big um, serious thing. For me, it, it it sort of deals with the two sides of um, of Larkin's personality. There is a bosomy rose inside him, sort of brash and very much of the world, and he likes a drink 
and he's a bit sniffy about poetry and about any sort of what he would see as pretensions. And then the friend inspects a side of him, which is bookish, which is poetic, which is, oh, I think, on one level romantic, not a, a, an adjective you often hear applied to Larkin. Um, I'm going to go into a... To a um, Oh, why? Why are those um, pictures in his wallet on Lucky Charms? I think because they represent the fact that he hankers more for us, the sort of built-in non-closeness of the unattainable relationship, whereas the relationship that really could have happened, what well, did happen for seven years, but could have had real, r- real solidity... Um, that's what frightened him away. He was was frightened off by the deepness of it, the commitment of it, this sort of all-encompassingness of it, whereas the bosomy rose feels like a a more flimsy structure to to get lost in for a a short while. I'd like to talk about a poem called Dockery and Son. Dockery and Son begins with a few very economical lines that I think say a great deal. It it begins with speech marks. Dockery was junior to you, wasn't he? said the dean. His son's here now. Death suited visitant, I nod. So clearly we've got a conversation here with the dean. Um, death suited visitant places Larkin, or at least the speaker in the poem. I I mean, I always debate this about whether the speaker in the poem is the poet. It's best not to think of it as as the poet per se, generally, I think. I think it's always always be wary of that voice being uh, exactly the poet and what the poet thinks, although obviously sometimes that is the case. Just, uh, several things here. Dockery, Dockery was junior to was to you, uh, wasn't he? Said the dean. His son's here now. Death suited visitant. I nod. So he's one feeling as a, as a, as a visitant. He uh, he has he is visitant. I think this could be the adjective of those who visit. It sounds like he's gone back to his old uh, college. Spoke to the dean and. Um, and someone who was actually in a year below, at least a year below Larkin, now as a uh, or the speaker in the poem, um, now as a son there, and the death-suited visitant um, that he describes himself in this, and that is that is how he appears throughout. He doesn't use this phrase, but he is this figure who is in the poetry but not of it often certainly in the world but not of it in in the in the title uh, poem of this book um wits and weddings he's uh, on a train watching people who've just been married who, who are um, and all their friends and all the excitement and all that, that that involves and he's a very distant reading his book on the train watching but not getting involved he's a very not getting involved kind of a guy uh, death suited visitor one imagines soberly dressed as um as um, larkin always seems to be or the speaker in the poem etc and visitant as i say that can be an adjective on one level saying someone who visits also it's a term used for a ghost which is quite 
death-suited visitant, I think there is something um, ghost-like about the way he permeates the world of this of this book. I've said permeates, but I think I, I think I got away with it. Oh, I love that the sound of paper on the microphone. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it it's important that there is a tone. There is a tone that runs through this book. And the death-suited visitant is is the voice of that tone, if you like. The great American poet Robert Frost, who I'm sure I'll talk about um, the poetry of on on one of these uh, at some point. He said that if a poem, if a book of poetry has thirty-two poems, he doesn't actually say thirty-two. I don't think, but there's thirty-two in Wits and Weddings. That the book itself, the collection, is the thirty-third poem. So the whole of the book becomes another poem in itself. Um, a bit like an album, like you could say that, you know, Sergeant Peppers was, I don't know how many tracks, 10 tracks, but the album itself is like another track, it, the tone, the completeness of it, uh, the concept, if you like. So anyway, he finds out that someone who was below him, uh, a younger person than him at college, has got a son there now. Off he gets, he catches the trains, uh, the train, there's lots of... Uh, trains in um wits and weddings the 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 book and um he says in this i catch my train ignored which for larkin is not that's not a complaint that's a that's a bonus generally speaking and um it is when he changes trains there's a fabulous it's never really struck me until i read this poem there's a fabulous no man's land when you're changing trains and hanging about at the station waiting for the next train a time that is not in time almost a hiatus that gives you a chance maybe to think in this in this instance he starts to think about the words of the dean and dockery and the sun being there, etc., etc. But first of all, he's on the train. Here he goes. I fell asleep waking at the fumes and furnace glares of Sheffield where I changed and ate an awful pie and walked along the platform to its end to see the range joining and parting lines reflect a strong, unhindered moon. People who know this poem might be slightly outraged that I haven't hammered home the rhymes of changed and ranged and the long and strong but the rhymes in this for me they sort of hang around in the distance they don't want to be uh they don't want to be forefronted they're in there somewhere but i'm i'm not going to um i'm not going to hit them with a hammer so um I, I, so when he says um the furnace glares of sheffield where i changed you kind of want to hear him say where I changed trains, but where I changed gives us that bit of ambiguity that he might have had a thought there that changed him. Something happened that actually changed him there. And when he says that he looks at the uh, the, the railway lines, um, joining and parting lines, uh, it makes, I think, one think about the joining and parting lines of life, the way you know someone, you don't know someone, you things, common things go, etc., etc. Also, of all the adjectives I've heard applied to the moon in poetry, I think one of my favourites is unhindered, as, um, as Larkin says 
here. Um, I'm guessing there's no cloud around, but uh, it's it's a beautiful unhindered moon, a strong unhindered moon. I love it. So he then he has the thought. He um he thinks about the conversation with the dean, and he thinks about um in this transitory place that he's in between trains. He thinks about Dockery, the son, his life, etc. Okay. To have no son, no wife, no house or land still, still seemed quite natural. Only a numbness registered the shock of finding out how much had gone of life, how widely from the others. Dockery now. Only nineteen he must have taken stock of what he wanted and been capable of... No, that's not the difference. Rather how convinced he was he should be added to. Why did he think adding meant increase? To me, it was dilution. Now, maybe this is one of the reasons that when I was afraid of being swallowed up by parenthood, the book... It was subconscious, if that if it's true. But it, the book that came to mind was um, Wits and Weddings, because here is that essential. This is the pages of Wits and Weddings. Here's that essential feeling. I think that essential fear that some people think that children that being added to meant increase, that it means increase and expansion of you. It's like an egotistical thing, uh, whereas as he says, to me it was dilution. And that was what I was afraid of. I was afraid of of dilution. And I think one of the things I did was, was one of the things that the speaker does here is that you congratulate yourself for feeling that because anyone who thinks that adding means increase, that somehow there's something about them that maybe they are ego-led, that having children reproducing themselves, a, a, a sense of legacy and, and, and all that stuff. I, um, I, I think he manipulates us here somewhat. Um, he says of Dockery, how convinced he was he should be added to. Why did he think adding meant increase? We have no evidence whatsoever that that was the attitude that um, Dockery adopted. Uh, convinced he was he should be added to. We, how do we know that? We, we have if if he knows that he hasn't told us in the poem. Um, it, the child might have been an accident. He might not have been happy about it. And why did he think adding meant increase? How do we know? He thought it's as if Dockery now is not a real character in the poem. He is now become a cipher for that which Larkin doesn't believe. So he needs to paint Dockery in a certain way, convinced. You know, someone who's convinced is always a worry, aren't they? That sounds like someone who, who, who lacks subtlety or doubt. A sort of unquestioning, unthinking man is um, this Dockery. But the dockery seems to have been created by the speaker rather than from any real knowledge. And um, clearly Larkin is, or again, the speaker in the poem is with, um, there's a famous quote by the English critic Cyril Connolly, who says, uh, 
There is no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. And it's that view, it's that view that um, the the child is a, a great danger to creativity, which you are not surprised to find that um, that Larkin believes. This thing about setting Dockery up as a character who says the things that Larkin needs him to say to make himself look, um, I don't know, better, I suppose, for want of a more intellectual term. We find this again in the last poem of the collection, which is called, I'm turning to it now, An Arundel Tomb. Arundel is a place um, I haven't been to, but it's a place, just in case you're desperately thinking that Arundel is some sort of uh, technical stonemason tomb word. In this, he wanders around a church and he sees one of those tombs that you see with people lying on top, a statue of someone lying on top. In this case, two people, a man and a woman, and uh, it begins an Arundel tomb. As I said, the last poem in the collection. Side by side, their faces blurred. The Earl and Countess lie in stone. Now, he's very quick to point out here, because what you've got is, is, a, is a couple eternally at each other's side. And that would always be an image, I think, that disturbed Larkin, because it is, um, it's a suggestion that love lasts in some way and is real and true and incredibly durable. And I don't think he does believe that, certainly on one on one level, which we're going to uh, talk about now. So side by side, their face is blurred. He's very quick to point out that even though they are made of stone, that which we associate with solidity and, you know, the whole thing of being set in stone, that it lasts forever, their faces are blurred. So he's already suggesting the, the permanence of them and therefore their love, I think. And the Earl and Countess lie in stone. Lie, of course, has more than one meaning they are um they are lying on top of the the tomb but are are they also lying about about love and um fidelity i mention this particularly because one thing that he notices very early on when he looks at them is they are holding hands and when he sees that they're holding hands he experiences a um he says, one sees with a sharp, tender shock, his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. And a sharp, tender shock. It feels like the steely carapace of um, Larkin, that sort of cynicism armour that he wears, has suddenly been slightly shaken um, a sharp, tender shock as he sees this image of um, sort of eternal love. So then he goes to work on them a bit like he went to work on uh, Dockery. And in the, in the third stanza of the poem, he slightly undermines them as much as he can. He says, uh, they would not think to lie so long. So once again, he returns to that... Um, 
ambiguity of the word lie. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see. A sculptor's sweet commission grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. So um, they wouldn't think to lie so long. They didn't. They didn't expect this. This thing. This sort of slightly fake hold handing, hold handing, hand holding thing to go on. Um, I quite like hold handing. As, as if you hyphenated that, it might be something I, I use. Um, such faithfulness in effigy. Effigy to me suggests a fakeness, a sort of a slightly dodgy representation. And that's about the only faithfulness Larkin or the speaker of the poem can tolerate. Just a detail friends would see. You know, it was thrown, a sculpture's sweet commission grace. So it's a, a bloke was paid, remember, he was commissioned to do this. And he wanted to make it look nice. And he's, as it says, thrown off by the sculptor. So he's just, he's banged out the hand-holding thing as a little flourish. It doesn't really mean anything. They didn't mean it to mean anything. This is even worse than Dockery. These people have probably been dead 500 years and... Larkin is explaining that what seems clear to us that they wanted to establish their love, that seems obvious to us, but he's very clear to to point out that that, that couldn't, be, couldn't be that, could it? And um, when it ends, then he, he, really, he really goes to town on this. He says, oh, listen to that, I'm not ashamed of it paper still exists it ends like this time has transfigured them into untruth the stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon and to prove our almost instinct almost true what will survive of us is love so he couldn't have really done more to to pull the rug away from that final line. Time has transfigured them into untruth. Stone fidelity suggests that, okay, there's fidelity in stone that probably wasn't in life. They hardly meant, um, it. you know, it's an accident and we, we're taking it too literally. And that line, our almost instinct, almost true. So he won't even accept that it is an instinct in us that love is special and lasts and has real potential to be uplifting and amazing. And it's that almost, the two almost, are almost instinct, almost true. So it need, this thing nearly proves it true, but obviously it doesn't, it doesn't really. And, um, and so he endeavours to undermine it. Now, what I don't think about Larkin is that he accidentally does this. I don't think he accidentally um, sets up Dockery as someone who has strong views on how amazing having kids is because of his enormous ego or sets up the uh, the Count and, and the Countess as uh, as two people who's uh, got this... Uh, sorry, the Earl and the Countess... Um, Two people who have have been party to some lie about about love and its longevity. 
he doesn't do things accidentally, I don't think. I think he's too good for that. I think Larkin is saying, look, I am a cynic. I don't really believe in in love and it's certainly the way it's described by the world and by the other poets. But I'm I'm putting into the poem this... I'm forefronting my sleight of hand when I argue this case. So it it is a way of undermining his own cynicism. He's, he's, he's offering us hope. And the hope comes from us noticing that when he argues his case, he uses dodgy methods in some way. That You can't get round the fact that Dockery's son is, is at Dockery. He had a son. It might well be a beautiful, non-egotistical a complicated thing like a lot of father and son relationships, perhaps every father and son. And maybe the couple really were in love. So I think what what I hear from Larkin is here, I don't believe in love, but even as I express that unbelief, I have to do it in a way which still gives you and me hope that it might be true. That's what I think, that technique of putting words into the... of imposing views on other people and then going against them, I think it's because he wants all the views to be available. I think he wants us to question. And I, some people who know about Larkin, I'm sure, will disagree with this. But there's a bit in, in Dockery and Son which I think is an amazing, thought-provoking thing... And when he's talking about the fact that he thinks that, you know, kids lead to dilution and some people think they lead to increase, you know, they're a good thing, they're a bad thing, they enrich your life, they they water down your life. All these arguments we we hear a lot, and sure, the arguments that were going around my head uh, during my partner's pregnancy, not all the time, but certainly on bad days. He discusses this. He discusses his um, opinion, as I say, opposed to Dockery's. And then he says, where do these innate assumptions come from? Not from what we think truest or most want to do. Those warp tight shut like doors. They're more a style our lives bring with them. Habit for a while. Suddenly they harden into all we've got and how we got it. So he actually questions where all the opinions, all our opinions, who we are, where does it come from? Where do these innate assumptions come from? Not what we think truest or most want to do. So we probably don't question those things, our beliefs, our views, our opinions, our attitudes. But if we stand back from them... Are they really from what we think is the most true, uh, things that we've really decided on? Or are those things all locked away and we just, it's just like a habit we get into. You become that person and if I was to ask you to stand and defend that person and that person's views, that their worldview, their attitude to others, their attitude to children, their attitude to love, their attitude to relationship... They would be hard to find the origin of those beliefs because 
We don't know where they come from. They get into habits. We read something. We hear something. What I like about this, it sort of says everything you're reading here. Look, this is who I am, but don't take too much value from it. It's just who I am. I think Larkin is is brilliant. I think this this collection of poetry is brilliant. I fear, I, I mean, I love it so much that I fear I cannot do it justice. There are many more brilliant poems in this collection. I, I'd urge you to read it. It's the thing that turns up in second-hand bookshops, as indeed do all um, do all great um, great poetry books. And that's one of the second-hand joys of um, loving poetry. You can get it on the cheap, and not many people like it. Uh, it's always good to like something that not many people like, in my opinion. So yeah, read it. I think, I, I think I'm. It, for me, it is true that Larkin, the the great cynic, the great sort of beer drinking librarian with the dark view of life that the pessimist keeps undermining himself by saying I'm saying this but check me out question me listen to how I'm saying it and maybe you can find the truth is that Larkin makes a big decision that the last line in this book is what will survive of us is love and although he has undermined that with his saying that they've been, this couple have been transfigured into untruth, that is that, that um, seems to prove our almost instinct almost true. A great poet like like Larkin would not accidentally leave a whole collection of poetry with the line, "What will survive of us is love," unless he wanted us to at least consider that as a possibility that is that is what i think and okay it comes through uh, this line quite battle scarred after all the all the qualifiers that he puts on it it's it is a blurry old epitaph on this fading stone but um it still lingers what will survive of us is love and oh my goodness i love wits and weddings by philip larkin So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of my poetry podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. <laughs> Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week. Oh, and uh, P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs.